You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. It's, uh, it's really great to be with you this morning. Now, I want to dive straight in. Um, last week, I asked you this question, uh, and the question was, what is the most impactful thing that we could do to demonstrate the power of and the reality of Jesus to this community? And the answer I gave pretty swiftly was reveal the reality of and power of Jesus to this community through the church. And what that meant was that we reflect Jesus as a church, but as individuals as well. Because as the individuals come together reflecting Jesus, the reflection becomes bigger. And so the main point from last week, and you can pick this up on our podcast, is that if Jesus is given room in your life, then you will be changed and you will increasingly reflect Jesus in your life and your responsibility, give him room, right? Give him room. Well, this week I want to ask you another question. And it's one of the impact kind of questions again. What is the most impactful way that we could choke our witness and the witness of this church? What, what is the most impactful way that we could impede and strangle and hold back witness in our own lives and witness in the church? Now, I want to just take a minute. I'm going to come back to that. I want to take you to my garden, okay? Now, if, if you're under a certain age and gardening's not your bag, then I'm really sorry. This is the dullest illustration ever for you. If you are like into gardening, if, you, if that's your bag, then I apologize to you because I'm probably going to get everything wrong. I'm not much of a gardener. Um, but what I did a few years ago is I ripped out a load of paving stones uh, and I dug it up a little bit underneath and I chucked in a ton of compost uh, and then I started planting like herbs because I'm a so I like the herbs in the garden, some heathers, randomly some raspberries that I stole. I don't know if that's illegal or not. Like they were just growing like in the wild. So I uprooted them and planted them and they've done well. Okay. And there was this other flowering plant. Now I'm not sure what it is. And actually I'm not sure if any of you might have given it to us. I'm being careful about this. Okay. But it, it was in our front garden and it was kind of a leafy, greeny, soft kind of plant. And every so often, once a year, it would just burst out these beautiful little purple flowers, okay? And so it looked quite stunning, and I, was, I didn't want to spend too much money, okay? Because I live in Scotland, and I, <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> the way to lose your congregation instantly, 101. No, um, I, I kind of didn't want to spend too much money, uh, and I saw this plant in the front garden, I thought, that will fill a bit of space, and it, it's pretty once a year. So I, I took that up and I, I chucked it into the back garden. Uh, the problem was, it just started taking over. Like, it, it started going out everywhere and like over, overshadowing everything else in the garden. And then the other things I noticed were starting to not get enough nutrition from the soil because of what was going on with this plant. And so every year I would hack it back like ruthlessly. And, and so that the base of this plant looks like, you know, a crew cut kind of thing. And, and then out of it still came all these like branches of 
like flowers and leaves still taking over. And no matter how much I cut it back, it just kept coming back and back and back. So eventually this year, I figured I've had enough of that. I'm going to deal with it because I want my herbs to grow better. I want my heathers to grow better and I want my uh, raspberries to grow better. So I thought that plant is coming out. So I went in absolute nightmare. I, the, the intricacy of all of the, the roots underneath it had like spun like a spider's web across pretty much the whole of that patch of, of garden that I'd created, right? Uh, and what was happening was all the other roots from the other plants, like the raspberries, were all in, entwined with it. And so I tried to sort of surgically remove it. I did a bad job. I ripped up some of the weed protection barrier underneath it. It had clung to. It was a right mess taking it out. Gardeners, please forgive me. I've probably gone about this completely the wrong way. And the problem was, for my garden to thrive, I needed to uproot that plant because it was strangling and overwhelming everything else. And our lives can be a bit like this. Much of our emotional and spiritual fatigue is a bit like that garden. Like like much of the, the good that we should have access to gets malnourished and asphyxiated by something that pervasively seems to grow in our lives. And actually, we've allowed it to grow. Perhaps because we kind of like it, or we're familiar with it. Perhaps because even though we know it's bad, every so often, it flowers, and it it just looks amazing, and you're like, wow, I actually like this thing. But most of the time, It's a pain, and it's actually strangling what is or what would be constantly beautiful and fruitful and life-giving in our lives. And, And so much of what should grow in our lives will not be able to until something else has been pulled up out of it. There are things that hinder, block, starve, and strangle our spiritual life. Okay? You're all kind of, hopefully you're kind of thinking, what could that be in me now? I mean, this is something that often holds me back, or or rather pulls me back, and yet I seem to gladly nurture it, like trim it, tend it, water it, and look after it, because once a year it might look beautiful, and I'm hanging on for that once a year, but I need to pull it up so that I can grow up. I need to uproot and grow. What needs to be pulled up in your life and mine so that we can grow spiritually? Well, it's self. Uh, to be more specific, it's selfishness, selfishness, self-interest. It's, it's conceit. It's pride. And if you've been around me for a little while, you might be thinking, like, you've spoken about this before, possibly quite recently. You've talked about humility, you've talked about pride, uh, and it's, it's happened a few times, and you're absolutely right. If you've been observing that, and if you're thinking that, you're absolutely right, because this is a major issue in my life. I want to point the fingers at me first. And quite potentially, your life also. And I want to say with this with gentleness, you won't get offended if it's not an issue, by the way. Ever thought about that? If it's not pressing on a nerve, it's not going to offend you at all. If you feel this isn't your problem, I want to gently suggest it's probably your biggest problem. If you feel this isn't your problem, it's probably your biggest problem. And look, here's where it fits into the context of everything, okay? 
in the garden, the garden, not my garden, which is rubbish, but the garden that God created. It was perfect. But sin entered and it broke everything. And then man's interest towards God turns into man's interest to self. Our eyes come off of the radiant king and make ourselves our own kind of radiant king. Even though we only bloom like once a year and the rest of the time we're starving and yet we're so consumed in our hearts as human beings with ourselves. Every human everywhere has a problem with sin at the center of our lives. And at the center of that problem with sin is the self is pride. It may be to varying degrees. It might be to varying levels of subjection, or maybe, maybe you've wrestled with it enough. Maybe, maybe it's more under control, or maybe you've allowed Jesus in to uproot it so that you can grow. But without it, an unkempt spiritual garden will grow out of control. So here's the one thing today that if you're writing notes, write this down. Pride needs uprooting, not just cutting back. We, we need to get rid of it and not just cut it back. Jesus, talking about sin, says, if your hand sins against you, then cut your hand off. Like, that's, I mean, obviously, he's not, like, we wouldn't be having any hands. Like, none of us would have hands or feet or eyes or whatever. But he's saying, that's how seriously I want you to take this. Get rid of it if it's a problem. So I just ask, please don't switch off, but rather, if you can, listen, question, weigh and let the spirit probe to repentance, because perhaps our understanding of pride needs a refresher every now and again. And a common misconception, is it not, that that pride is about boastfulness, about being puffed up or arrogant. It's kind of obvious. And I'm sure you all know people who are proud uh, and what have you. But actually, it's so much more. And I want to suggest perhaps the boastfulness, perhaps the the outwardness of pride is the thing that flowers once when the season is correct. But most of the time, what pride is like is the roots that weave in and around everything else and are actually starving us spiritually. Pride is about an unbalanced view of ourselves. That can be either way. Having too high a view of yourself and having too low a view of yourself, they are both pride. Okay? Puffing yourself up and doing yourself down, they are both pride. It's about unbalance with our view of self. Putting the self in the wrong order of our spiritual priorities. So I want to identify this with a little bit more precision. And I want to identify what's the nature of pride. And I want to start here. I want to start with me. Because I don't want you ever to think that I've got this all together. And I'm casting my wisdom upon you for you to kind of imitate and follow me. I'm a wretch. (laughs) and a stuff up. If you really want to know, speak to Jess. That's the truth. If you really want to know what I'm like, chat to Jess, and you are very welcome to do that. Now, some of you might be thinking, surely not you, pastor. <laughs> well, especially me. Where would I begin to talk about pride in me? 
I mean, my sense of entitlement, my, my sense of my rights, my, my kind of idea of car, get out of my way, I'm driving. Or the queue at the checkout. I know I go on about this a lot because this is like, this is where my pride comes out because I think I should have access first. I should have priority of way. And so that annoying thing where you get in the queue and you're looking at all the other queues. Which one's going to go down first? And then you, if you do, you change. You're like, oh, that one's going first. And then just as you change, somebody comes in like, with a ton of stuff, and you're like, no, what are you doing? Or like, is paying with two Ps or something like that. And it's just like, get out of my way. Or, or what about my sense of offense, how offended I can get? Or my sense of ownership, ownership over my time and my resources. But this is me time. Like, I should protect me time. Like, we should look after ourselves. Well, yes, we should. But sometimes my pride puts a higher weight on how much time I deserve to myself or how much of my resources I deserve to myself. And listen, most of my conflicts, disagreements, disunity, all of that kind of stuff, have been ultimately around pride. I mean, I could even get proud of the fact, I say could, because I wrestle with this. Sometimes, and recently people have said, Tom, what I really appreciate about you is your honesty when you preach. Thanks for noticing. (laughs) You see what I mean? Like, it's so easy to get even proud about that. Yes, I'm preaching well because I'm so honest. Like, get a grip, Tom. Get a grip. Left alone, my pride would run out of control. And, And so how can we spot the effects of pride in our lives. What evidences are there? I, I, I want to give you uh, five, and then we're going to, like, quick five, and then we're going to turn to the Bible and see what God's saying about this. So, the first thing, you might be surprised by a few of these. The first thing's comparison. As we compare ourselves to other people and try to measure up, it's pride. I'm not saying all emulation is wrong. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, Paul was being humble there. He wasn't being arrogant. Okay, so it's not arrogant to say, imitate me, if indeed you're doing the thing that you're asking people to imitate you in. But all kinds of insecurity comes from trying too hard from trying to measure up. Either you've got some set of like, things in your own head that you think you've got to hit, or you've seen it in somebody else and you're trying, you think the way for me to be noticed and accepted and valued is I've got to be X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so your whole kind of thing of yourself becomes a comparison act to somebody else. And, and if you want to know and let Jesus probe into that, have a look at your Facebook account and have a look at your Instagram account. What's your self-image? How much of yourself are you pushing out there? But it's not just that. I'm not saying don't put photos on. I put loads of photos. No, actually I don't, but that's because I'm lazy. Like, it's easy on Facebook to project the image you want of yourself. Isn't it? And it's also easy to look at somebody else and compare yourself and think, they have such a great life. Mine's awful. I'm rubbish. They've got so many likes. Nobody notices my posts. And and it destroys that sense of self-worth. But that self-worth is coming from the wrong place. There's only one who we should compare to. And we can never measure up. 
you get that? We can never measure up, and we're going to look at this next week or next time, but we can never measure up. But that's good news because we need him to come in and be a part of our lives. So he causes us to measure up. He declares that we are worthy enough. He says it is done in our lives. All right, but trying to measure up to people around us, what, what are we trying to prove? For what reasons? Now, the second thing is offendedness. How, how easily do you get offended? What offends you? Think about it. What causes you offense? Most of the time, it's if I feel like someone's treading on my toes, in terms of not, not physically, because I would punch, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Get off. No, but who's, who's getting in my corner? Who's stealing the limelight from me? Or, or, or who's saying things that I don't like? Like offendedness, being belittled, being ignored causes offence, being disagreed with, being corrected or being challenged. How do we react to these things? You know, offendedness is the partner of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will wreak havoc in our lives if we allow it. And also, offendedness is a choice. Third thing, criticism. And I think this goes hand in hand with offense. Because I want, no, no, I'll change that. Because I expect that things should be done my way, to my exacting measures. And when they don't, I'm gonna criticize. Or if I feel like somebody's overtaking me, I, I, I could cause, it could cause me to want to criticize them, you know? Criticism is an evidence of pride in my life. I expect that I'm in the right, have the right, or the duty to let you know that you're in the wrong. And the next two I'm gonna to put together and put quickly, impatience and entitlement. These go together. Spurgeon, the, the prince of preachers, okay, said of the prideful person that they will not endure to wait. Pride is behind our impatience. Do you not know? I've got things to do, important things. Get out of my way. That's pride. It's putting ourselves higher. Spurgeon goes on to say, who are we that God should make himself our servant and take his time from our watch. How impatient can we be with God? He's God. He, he's perfect in all of his ways. And we're like, come on, God, hurry up. Often being in the habit of thinking that we should be served at once, like in a cafe, come on, service is really slow in Manistons today, hurry up guys, come in. my wife works there by the way, that's why I'm saying that, <laughs> you know, if, you've, if you're sitting there and you're getting impatient, oh, I should be served, they should be serving me, I'm the customer, the customer's always right, that's pride, that's pride, or if we somehow manage to make it all about me, that entitlement, consumerism, church is there for me, here's a really tough question, did you come to this church to be served or to serve? Service looks very different. It doesn't mean joining a team and doing a practical thing, but did you come to this church to be served, like give me church or to serve, to invest something in it, to encourage in some way? Uh, also, surprisingly, I lied, there were six. I'm so sorry about that. Service. Because I, I'm talking about serving. Did you come to 
be served or to serve, but we can also find pride in serving. It can become our identity. And if it's taken away from us or if situations change, then we can really wrestle. If we wrestle with a change in what we are supposed to do, yes, it's hard. Yes, there's compassion for you. But yes, also, pride is underneath it. Pride is underneath it. And I, I can say that with authority because I've experienced that. Many times where something that I was doing was suddenly taken away or the circumstance changed and I hated it and I kicked back and my old church, I I really leveled it and I wrote a long email to the leaders about the thing that I used to do that they decided someone else was going to do and I hated it. And it took me about three weeks before the Spirit of God broke in and said, you're proud and that needs to change because you are not going to grow in the Spirit until you've dealt with that. So one thing, pride needs uprooting, not just cutting back. So what do we do? Let's turn into our passage for today. And we're in uh, Philippians 2. And we're going to just look at two verses today, verses 3 and 4. But I want you to remember that these follow on from the previous verses. We're not taking anything out of context here. Okay? So what Paul said last week was... Well, he didn't say it last week. He said it 2,000 years ago, but I, I raised it last week. If you, in, uh, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then be like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and one of mind. You can't do that if you're absorbed with yourself. Impossible. Okay? And he goes on to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. These are such weighty verses. I want to put this to you, that if we could really, really grab hold of this in our individual lives and allow the Spirit to make some growth happen, then this town would be changed. Or at the very least, it would be looking in and going, flip, what is going on in that place? They are different. Do nothing. What what does do nothing mean? It means nothing. No thing, ever. Do nothing. Literally, not even one thing. How much can we do out of our selfish ambition, out of our vain conceit? Nothing. Nothing. That's a pretty clear instruction. Ah, but this person offended me. No, nothing. Ah, but if I don't do this, then they won't know. No, nothing. Out of selfish ambition. Don't even entertain the idea, is what Paul is talking about. Don't let it take root. Don't let it grow out of control. What is permissible? Nothing. And we should search out any idea, any hint of this in our lives, and hit the delete button. It's really hard, and I'll get to that, okay? Do do nothing, honestly, is the destruction of all of our possible excuses. Do nothing means we have no excuse if we do. The instruction is very clear. Do nothing. Now, if you yourself have no selfish ambition... 
Does that mean that you're giving way to somebody else's selfish ambition? Because that's where I get riled. Yeah, I, I, yeah, but I don't want to just them to do it. Like, they've got to do the same thing as well. Fine, but look at yourself. If you have no selfish ambition, then by serving someone else, even if you're serving their selfish ambition, you're ultimately serving Christ. If you have no selfish ambition, then you are serving Christ. Uh, As you serve Pam, you're serving Christ. As you serve Ian, you're serving Christ. As you serve Len, you're serving Christ. You see, you're serving Christ. If you have no selfish ambition, selfish ambition literally means rivalry. Remember, Paul's talked about this because he mentioned these other preachers who were going out. He didn't care because they were preaching the gospel, but he did say they were, they were preaching out of selfish ambition, out of rivalry to Paul. They made it a contest. They made it competitive. The gospel isn't competitive. Apart from it competes with sin and defeats sin. And it breaks chains. But it doesn't compete with each other. That's not the gospel. I mean, how exhausting is it when somebody is constantly trying to prove themselves? How exhausting is it to you when I'm trying to prove myself? Trying to exert ourselves by force or fancy. Trying to climb the ladder, even if it means trampling over other people. Selfish ambition destroys community. And then vain conceit. Strong's dictionary causes vain glory. Like, it's a state of pride without basis or justification. Like, you're all hot air. You haven't got anything to back up the claim that you're making. And I love Top Gun. Uh, and there's a great quote there that says, your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. And it's, it's true of Tom Cruise, I'm afraid to say, you know, because his ego's like crazy out of control. But I can't look at Tom Cruise and not look at Tom Workman. And say, is my ego often writing checks that my faith can't cash? It's about being boastful or pretentious or uh, having delusions of grandeur, being all show. And so Paul's saying, take a reality check. Now the root of pride is self, self-promotion, self-preservation. Selfish ambition and vain conceit like that plant in my garden. Okay, you might think that you manage to make them look awesome every once in a while, but under the surface, they are strangling the life of anything good that would be nourishing you spiritually. If you think, I'm not growing enough, I'm not mature enough, that there might be that the enemy's laying accusation at your, at your feet, and, and so you've got to take that before God. But it might also be that you've allowed this nest of pride to weave its way into your spiritual life, and you will not grow while pride is out of control in your life. And I know this to be true because I am prideful. And it weaves. And you won't see it a lot of the time, but it's there. And it strangles the the fruit of the Spirit being expressed in my life. How can I express true love for others or true gentleness or patience or kindness if I'm all about me? So I need to uproot and grow. Pull up in order to grow up. Well, how? Paul continues. 
Rather. That's the next word that he uses. In fact, let's go back there. He says, rather, in humility. This is the fulcrum. This is the tipping point. This is the balance, the turning point in it all. Don't do this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but rather. So so stop doing and start doing. It's like Paul saying, take off the old and put on the new. One action, second action. They come together. They have to work together. So rather than choosing self, choose humility. Value others above yourself. Put others' interests first. This is the antidote. And so when he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, this is what he's talking about. We're coming to this. Humility. Now, humility doesn't mean putting ourselves down. It means lifting somebody else up. Oh, but that person doesn't deserve to be lifted up. Do you know lifted up? Do you know who they are? When you lift somebody else up, you're lifting Jesus. It doesn't matter if they don't deserve it, you didn't deserve it when he lifted your head. Humility isn't backing out of things, it's not suppressing yourself. It's not relinquishing what God has called you to. It's it's none of those things, and it's not being passive. It's it's not being like, I I think the phrase people use quite cruelly is being a snowflake, being, oh, you know, let everyone else have their way, and I don't really want to deal with this. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less and valuing others more highly, each other's needs. Not everyone in this room has the same needs. In Philippians, if you look at the church there, there was Lydia, who who was this wealthy businesswoman. She had some street cred. Uh, And then right next to her, you have a jailer who's rough and tough. And then you had this slave girl who had been like released from this, uh, these spirits that were oppressing her and possessing her. Uh, and so you've got these three different types of people, all with different interests. And yet this is a church that Paul loves because of their partnership in the gospel. We, each of us, have different needs in this room. We're at different stages, young, older, like single, married, different cultures, different life stages, different experiences, different skills, different hobbies, different interests, even different ecclesiology, as in the way we do church, is different. We have different needs, and we should prefer each other's. We should should look to each other's interests more than our own. Each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ you're serving. Now, just in case you don't know, pride is a problem. Why is it a problem? Well, like the plant, it blocks growth. It divides, it disunites, it separates in the body of Christ. It compromises our witness. Ultimately, pride leads to destruction and the proverb says pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fool and ultimately God's against it he is against God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble 1 Peter 5 5 
Is God against something in my life right now? Because he's for me, don't make that mistake. He is for me, he is for you. He's shown that with hands stretched upon a cross. But, But is there something in our lives that God is against? Wouldn't you want to identify that and figure out how we can do something about that if it were true? Pride needs uprooting, not just cutting back. For the benefit of the whole garden, that's what needs to happen. Pharaoh, he let the plant just grow out of control until his heart was completely hardened and there was nothing redeemable left. Saul, he didn't uproot the plant, he just kind of trimmed it every so often just to try and keep God a bit happy, but it strangled the life out of his kingdom and it was ultimately his destruction. And if you read 2 Samuel, the first chapter, three or four times it says, oh, how the mighty have fallen. That's where that phrase comes from. Saul, the mighty, his pride brought him to destruction. And it also brought his son with him. And Joseph, he used the time in prison to let his pride be uprooted by God and transformed. So what can you do? What's your responsibility? There's a do not and there's a rather, isn't there? We've seen that in the text. This indicates a responsibility on your part and my part and action. Even as we are saved by grace and not by works, right? But there is something expected. As James says, faith without works, dead. We're not talking about trying to do stuff to prove that we're good enough. It's more about the heart and what God's doing here. So what can we do to uproot pride in our lives? Three things. Firstly, number one, consider yourself. Consider your ways. Not, not in a selfish way, but more like, because I'm putting you first here, I'm saying the first thing you do is consider yourself. When you're in a plane and, and the oxygen mask, mask drops, what do the stewardesses tell you? They tell you, put your own mask on first before trying to sort somebody else's out. It's kind of like saying, sort the plank out in your own eye before you deal with it in someone else, but in a much nicer way. Okay, so why, why sort this out first? Because how are you going to help somebody else out if you're spiritually unconscious? If you're looking at somebody else and thinking, whoa, they're not behaving like a Christian, the first thing you want to do is check your own oxygen supply. Because how is it that you're going to tell them effectively what they need to change if you yourself are missing it and you're asphyxiated spiritually? So consider yourself. Weigh your motives with honesty and, and consider your interactions not just with those who you find easy. Right? If you want to know if you've got a bit of a pride issue, look at the people you don't get on with more than the people you do. Look at the people who wind you up, even if you're able to put on a bless you kind of thing. Like, look at it, because if that person rubs you up the wrong way, the issue's probably more likely in you. Second thing, now consider others. First thing, consider yourself, consider others. Like, pursue true humility by considering others in preference, showing kindness and love. 
In fact, look to the person who's three people to, to your left, three people to your right, if you've got someone either side, three people in th- front and three people behind. Can you show them grace and love and unity and humility from your life? Can you, can you serve them from a real desire, not, not, not to get brownie points for yourself, but to champion them, to, to, to encourage them spiritually? Can you do that? And then the third thing is consider Jesus. This is the most important thing. Consider yourself. Get that oxygen mask on. Consider others before yourself. That looks weird because I've put that in the wrong way. Um, And now consider Jesus. And this is the most important thing. You need Jesus. This stuff isn't just difficult. It's actually impossible without Christ. If you're thinking, I need to go and write myself a list and do this and tick it off, and that's not the point of this. The point isn't that you need to suddenly rectify all this stuff. You can't. It's growing out of control. You can, you can snip it back, but you can't dig out that plant. And if you do, you might pull up other things with it. You need the master gardener to draw alongside. He can surgically remove that from our lives. And do you know what? It's not a once done deal because every day that we have breath in our lungs, we have a problem with pride and we need to continually bring that back to Jesus. And the good news is that as we surrender to Jesus, he does the work. He says, come to me, all you who are weary. If you find this heavy... Don't worry. I'm not saying pick up a bag and carry it. I'm not saying sort yourself out. I'm saying come to Jesus. Let him sort you out. And it's not even a heavy sorting out from Jesus. What does he say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. What's the heaviest weight and the loftiest burden that we could carry if it's not our own pride. So much of my spiritual fatigue is like that garden. Much of the good that gets asphyxiated is because I've let something grow in its place. And perhaps I kind of like it because once in a while it blooms and looks beautiful. Actually, to complete the analogy, perhaps once in a while in my pride I bloom and I feel like I look wonderful. Have you ever had that? Have you ever thought, I'm smashing it right now? I got this. You'd be surprised at the amount of times I've done that. You wouldn't pay me if you knew. It's a burden that's too heavy to maintain. So what needs to be uprooted so that we can grow? What's that look like in your lives? And I'm really landing this now. We often try to fill our lives with our own glory, but we end up choking it. Jesus emptied himself of his glory so that he could wrestle with our sin, our pride and death on our behalf. This is the beautiful hymn or poem or whatever it is we want to call it that we're going to come to in a few weeks' time when we get to this next little part of Philippians. And it's wonderful. Jesus has all the glory. Like, my glory is vain glory. I'm delusional if I think I have glory. Jesus 
All the glory that could ever be attributed anywhere, that, that all the glory that the universe could contain is his. And yet he emptied himself of his glory and stepped down in humility and humbled himself even to death upon the cross. So next time we're going to look at what true humility looks like. Jesus, our example. But for now, will you allow this Jesus room in your life to uproot so that you may grow. What would this town look like if that was the story for all of us? And it's so difficult and it's so easy. It's difficult because we can't deal with it. It's easy because we come to Jesus. We lay ourselves in humility at his feet. We bow down before him. So as we move into the last bit of our service and just before the band come, I just want to give you an opportunity to consider the servant king, to consider what it means for each other's needs to be preferred in my life.